0: Change happens. How we respond to change can make or break us and our careers. Join us for an intimate insight into how influential and authentic people lead through change. The good, the bad and everything in between. Because whether we like it or not, change happens. Hi, my name's Janelle McMaster and you're listening to season two of the Change Happens podcast, conversations with influential leaders on leading through change and the lessons learned along the way. Today, I'm joined by Josephine Suka, a member of the Order of Australia who recently became the first female chairperson of the Australian Sports Commission. She's also the co-founder and principal of construction company BuildCorp, which she established with her husband Tony three decades ago. In 2019, Josephine was named one of the Sydney Morning Herald's 50 most influential women in Australian sport for her leadership positions at the Australian Women's Rugby and Australian Rugby Foundation. Josephine serves on several private, public, government and not-for-profit boards, including Growth Point Properties Australia, Opera Australia, Centenary Institute of Medical Research and Melbourne University Infrastructure Advisory Board. She's also an active member of Chief Executive Women. Now with so many areas to cover, let's just jump into it. Hi, Josephine, and thanks for coming onto to the podcast. It's a real pleasure, Janelle. At the risk of asking a magician to reveal their secrets, Josephine, how does someone start out pursuing a career in medical research and then end up co-founding one of Australia's most successful construction companies and also becoming chairperson of the Australian Sports Commission?
1: Look, I think I might be one of those products of what we now know as a STEM education. Mm. I feel like I probably have some transferable skills that I didn't recognize then that I've brought into different parts of my life. It has helped structure the way I think. I am quite analytical in the way I approach issues and, and a bit technical. But for me, I think I'm a product of a STEM education.
0: If I think about the time frame, so that's over 30 years ago, that was uh, carving out a space that most weren't in. Most women weren't in at that stage, even more so than today, which is still a struggle.
1: Yeah, and and I do serve on the board of a medical research institute at the moment, Centenary Institute, and we Mm. do struggle to keep uh, women researchers, but more broadly, that talent pool within Australia. It's not something we've quite got our our head around yet in this
0: country. So if I think about the major chunks or aspects in your working life, whether it's being an exec in the building game or a serious philanthropist or the area of sports, Is there a common purpose that you have, Josephine, that sits above all of that and that you've applied to all those worlds?
1: Yes. I am the product of a a very good public school education. Uh, My father was a public servant and mum was a stay-at-home mum. I saw them work really hard with not an awful lot of money but we never wanted for anything. But I was extremely grateful for the opportunities that came my way when I entered construction and, you know, found myself, well, even today, in a home that I'd never, would have never been inside of when I was growing up, Mm. in, and opportunities that I never saw. We sent our children to public, to private schools. We remain very grateful. My husband and I have been married for 35 years, and I am just perpetually grateful and cannot believe our good fortune that we, have ended up in this country with amazing opportunities for your family if you work hard and that drives a genuine desire to um kind of share that that opportunity and understand what we can do to help release and open that for other people and and even though we might be born in Australia, not everybody has had the same opportunities, the same upbringing. If you've never seen parents get up and go to work every day, if you you know, if you're the cycle that you happen to be in, and we see cycles of sort of intergenerational disadvantage, if you've been fortunate enough to skip that, um, what can you do to make a bit of a difference there? And once you've been exposed to um, opportunities and ways you can help, or you've heard or seen things that you can't unhear or unsee. Mm it's a bit difficult to step back from, well, we have to do something. Right? And that's driven um, what my husband and I have both tried to do.
0: Well, let's talk about what your husband and you have both tried to do. Let's talk about BuildCorp. Um, as you say, you've been together for 35 years, the company founded well over 30 years. What led you both to start your own company together?
1: When I met Tony, he was a couple of years out of a um, – they called it a Bachelor of Building degree in those days. Mm. Uh, I think it's the Construction Management degree today. And um, he had – he was the first builder employed by Civil and Civic. I understand up until Tony, they were all civil engineers. And he was at Civil and Civic, then Ireland lease. Mm-hmm. And I was at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research, completing an honours degree there. And uh, we met. And I finished my degree, and I was on three months' holidays. And they needed somebody on site to help with accounts. And I took a job there on site for three months, and that, you know, I remained in construction. From gosh, that was 1985. How many years ago is that? I'm scared to. I'm scared to do the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. A lot. Yeah. So. Look, I found an industry that I really enjoyed. I studied while I was there, actually. I did a postgraduate diploma in education because I enjoyed studying and I thought that might be a handy thing to do if you've got children. But it was while we were there that we said um, we understood the industry. It was fast-moving. We're quite fast-moving, Tony and I. Mm. Um, The energy of the industry was fun. The people were great. It was very highly unionised at the time. Mm. Um, the Builders Labourers Federation was still active and um, running around. Well, I, I was there when they locked up Norm Gallagher and they deregistered the BLF and then the BWYU. But, but it was Gosh. it was exciting and energy and like wow. Um, and we did decide, as uh, a young couple, that one day we would really love to have our own construction company and I said to Tony, you could build the things I could, you know, help with back office and I, I I just liked the energy of construction. I didn't think I would. I'd never been exposed to it. I, I didn't know any builders and, and I ended up finding myself on sites. Um, I think I worked on about three or four sites um, in my time at Lentley, So I really
0: enjoyed it. Mm. What were some of the memorable first lessons that you learnt in those early days of BuildCorp?
1: Well, Tony came home <laughs> Um, without a job one day he had moved from civil and civic to Gervain Corporation and was project managing a very large commercial development in Chatswood and for Gervain Corporation and Gervain were placed into receivership and the job was half finished we had one day wanted to set up a construction company but not in the middle of a downturn it was 1990 and I was seven months pregnant with our first child so the timing just wasn't what we planned but Interestingly, in our head, we'd sort of taken ourselves there that one day we would and we had a conversation and Tony said, look, I, I reckon I could probably take this over and run this because we were, he was halfway through the job. There were these typical floor cycles. I knew I was in no position to help him with anything um, there and but there were a couple of really good men who were on the project with him, three actually, um, It ended up becoming two and we uh, brought them into a partnership with us. And they had a a small shareholding over the years we eventually bought out. And that was the beginning of Corp. So that was Tony um, having to run with that because of just the nature of the stage of life we were at. And while we weren't um, prepared, it's that whole thing about luck, right, when preparation meets opportunity, we were Mm. probably mentally prepared. Tony was technically prepared. Uh, The opportunity was there, but there were, you know, kind Of lots of other things that weren't um, ideal, interest rates 18 <laughs> and a half percent, an economic <laughs> downturn, uh, you partner not with you through that. So, but a little bit of courage that comes uh, more often with youth and inexperience. Mm. Would we do the same thing again today? We'd probably think a bit harder because yeah, we know the naivety, there's go something wrong. about that in there the time. Yeah, we, we were really prepared. Um, had a focus on excellence. Tony um, and that particular project had been awarded an Australian Quality Award. Tony was a student of total quality management mm. and neil Deming and we both sort of bought into this whole principle of uh, quality and he ended up becoming a judge for the Australian Quality Award. So quality was in his hardwiring and delivering quality projects. In, a, in an industry where you, you have non-replicable projects, so you're not at a production line where we need to make sure that we get the tolerances of this, I don't know, ball bearing right mm. for this industry and get that right every single construction project is totally different and how do you apply principles to a very different, um, you know, job every single time you do it. So there was a, a, you know, a hardwiring for excellence. We were really young and aspirational and very hardworking. I worked three jobs. Tony worked two right up until we, um, you know, had began to have a family. So by the time we'd landed there, we had our little fibro house, which we paid off. We'd, you know, set ourselves up financially. Well, but we were just hardworking and and it's, you know, hard to go wrong when you're that hardworking in a country like Australia and you try and work smart at the same time.
0: I've always sort of had a bit of a funny reaction and or an unclear reaction to the word luck. But I really love your definition of it's when preparation meets opportunity. I think you you, you sum that up beautifully. I have to say I don't
1: think that's mine. I think it's something I've heard. Oh, look, I'm give you all I've the credit. Take all the credit. <laughs> I <love it. laughs>
0: now I have to say, regardless of how loving our relationships are, and I love my husband dearly, but the idea of living and working with them might not be something that that all of us jump at the thought of, <laughs> did that initially cause you some hesitation? And How has the dynamic of the working relationship between you and Tony changed and progressed over multiple decades?
1: I think it's that old, and we talk about this a bit in sport, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm. And, and when you start there and we both had common goals because we set them together, right? And we set goals as a couple and as a family, not here are my goals, here are his goals and let's move along. when you start there, and as a family, you know we one day wanted to have a family, we wanted to live in a house like this, we would love to one day be able to afford to educate our kids this way, to have an overseas trip every now and then. So we sat down and set goals together. And when you do that together and you're on the same page, you don't get in the way of, of those goals by you know, your behaviours, you make sure that whatever you do, you moderate to ensure that it doesn't interfere with the thing that would ultimately, you know, bring you satisfaction at the end of a working life. And we worked pretty hard to set those goals. I remember we used to listen to a speaker by the name of Brian Tracy, Mm -hmm. and he was a Canadian thought leader, I suppose. And back in the days of you know audio cassettes, tapes, <laughs> on love our way, to act like into, I don't know what you're talking about,
0: but I still have a. Yeah,
1: stack. Tony has a car. His car at the moment still has a cassette. To oh wow! 15 so it's great. And I go, what if we get rid of that car? How are we going to play our cassette? We used to listen to this fellow every time we were in the car together, and he spoke about goal setting and leadership, and because we we're very young, trying to learn how to lead a business, and uh, but one of the really great things. Um, sit down and write a business plan and sit down and write a life plan and keep in mind that the business was there to serve your life goals, not the other way around. You know, you work hard to have a better quality of life, but don't work so hard to forget about your quality of life. And so we did. And we used to every uh, sort of five years, blue sky, you know, put that away. And if you don't refer to it in five years time, I bet you come back to it in 10 years time and you've probably achieved them just by that action of writing them down. So we made that a habit. And interestingly, exactly what he said transpired. We come really? to move how and pull out that list and go, look at that, it sort of happened. So there's apparently something in the action of writing a business plan, writing a life plan, writing it that gets your subconscious moving into um, making those goals realisable. But we set them together. I think that sort of keeps you focused on the end goal and end game. And we do that um, now because that's transferred into our business. We set our business plans together with our leaders. Taught us that you need to bring your people along a journey with you if you are
0: aligned and you set those goals together. I see a trending hashtag after this chat Hashtag couple goals. <laughs> now, the environment for women in construction has got to have changed quite dramatically over the years since you began in '85. Um, but I know that in previous interviews I've heard you on, you've mentioned that you never really saw that as a disadvantage for you. Can you say more about you know how you approached your career as a woman in construction? Well, I think it's back to where did we want to be as a couple, mm-hmm. right?
1: And we knew where we wanted to be. And work was, the, I guess, the enabler to get us to where that needed to be. And so I, in construction at the time, and now, (laughs) is paying a lot more than medical research, which I loved. And for us, it was going to allow us to achieve those goals easier. We really did want to get ourselves into a position where, which would be so hard for young couples today. Every time I say this, I think about, you know, my own adult children. But we were able to pay our house off. We worked seven days a week and most nights and and I was driven to do that. I wanted to be able to stay at home with my children, which I did for six years, but I didn't want to not be in control. I'm clearly a bit A-type and lack of control would have been not being able to provide them with what we needed to as parents. I just wanted to be able to relax and enjoy that particular time in there in my life. And I was able to do that. So when the you know, unthinkable happened, with Tony coming home without a job at the wrong time, at least I didn't have to worry about the roof over our head. Mm. It brought me security and, and um, surety and being in construction at that time. And yes, there weren't a lot of women. I wasn't there to look around and go, where are all the women? I was there to um, do a job. But I never saw and it never came to me you know, terrible behaviours. And and I still don't see a lot of that now. I must have been in construction, um, although I know a lot of people have had different experiences. Now, why didn't I see that? Well, I was the only woman there, so it would have had to happen to me. But also, I didn't see any other women on site. So, mm. um, but people were, uh, I'm like, look, all of my career, I have to say, I was dragged up and put onto boards and put onto, you know, into roles by men because men were in a position of power, but it was men who mentored me and pulled me up. Mm. And and every now and then when I couldn't see in myself what they could see, they'd hold a mirror up and say, no, why would you say that? So, you know, I have to be, um, to me, I'm particularly grateful to the men and women who've done that for me. And it's been both in my career.
0: Bill Corp has certainly survived several economic downturns, um, very difficult twists and turns along the way. But as you say, long tenured employees, employer of choice, what is it that's made your organisation is so resilient, is it that mutually respectful environment? Are there other things that you've put in place that you think, is it your Lebanese heritage? Is it other things there that you think this is what has made us be able to be so resilient in the face of so many different circumstances?
1: I think our people are clear on what um, the business stands for and what we stand for and who we are. And some of them are business things, some of them are actions. The consequence is when our leaders are making decisions on behalf of the business, they are very clear on the values of the organisation and always begin their decision-making. When an issue comes up to you to solve, that's a problem that your people can't solve and that means it's never going to be black and white. And so what do you need to bring to your thinking when you look to resolve an issue or a decision? And so long as they're underpinned by... You know, a solid set of values. You know, with integrity, with you know, fair play. But and and we've got um, our own corporate code of conduct, our own set of values that we genuinely live by, and our people see us do it. And you can't say these are our values, and we pretty much, most of the time, always live by those. Just at the time, you know, if we except if we happen to be working for that client, or except if we happen to be doing that, then you know, let it slide. We do that now. Tony and I are very visible to the whole organisation, and as you say, we work together. The organisation has never seen us engage disrespectfully with each other ever. Mm. ever. E- even our children will tell you that. You know, of course, we disagree on things. We're never disrespectful, um, and we always and they watch us negotiate our way to a to an outcome that always ends up with a better result. And we share that, so our leaders know how to make decisions in our absence and they know the way to come to those decisions and we, and I think that clarity for them can be really liberating and we give our people a lot of authority at BuildCorp, which is a bit scary to do when you're a, a sector that has such low margins, mm. but we've attracted people with um, aligned values. It's fantastic. I
0: want to acknowledge, obviously, we're in a time of you know, COVID. Um, how has, I mean, I know construction was deemed an essential service, which is great, but I do wonder how it affected your business and was there ever, Anything that happens during COVID that you want to build into your forever way of operating even when the pandemic is long behind us?
1: We do an annual Employee opinion survey. Our hardest state, of course, was the Victorians. So we have about 40 staff in Victoria, and they're an amazing team. Brisbane and Sydney, yes, while well, we all took the financial and economic um, hit, none of us had the emotional hit that Victoria had. Even though they were still working on reduced numbers on sites, it was really hard for them. Now we fully expected when we did our employee opinion survey, which we never changed the timing of, whether it's we've just delivered a you know a, a terrible. Uh, budget or a great budget or the economy's terrible, or the economy's great, or this would be a bad or a good time to do it. We just never changed the time. So mm. in the middle of COVID, we fully expected the results of an employee opinion survey coming back to BuildCorp would produce terrible results out of Victoria. And the contrary happened. They really solidified their relationship and they bunkered down as a team. And they genuinely understood um, that if they wanted to move through this well, they would go much further if they did it together. So they began these regular, amazing communications. Tony and I um, had communications go out every single day to our staff, every single day to wow. everybody. But to see Victoria not just come through um, the their journey unscathed, to come through it and actually rise, you should have seen their net promoter score. It was off the dial. You know, continuing to learn from uh, what each of us are doing more broadly, um, the pride in that team because they had our probably our Uh, least seasoned uh, leaders in that team. We have a joint management team in Victoria and they did a fantastic job of leading their people
0: there and just the pride. I Want to turn to the philanthropic streak in you which is a, a huge one. You it's not you have the Buildcorp Foundation and as I said in the opening of this podcast you also have Opera Australia, the Australian Museum, the Infrastructure Advisory Board, Sydney University Football Club Foundation. You've worked in some very eclectic and very diverse groups in these roles. What are some of the lessons you've learned? In collective decision making,
1: I would say the Buildcorp Foundation has probably been the, a result of the cumulative learnings. I suppose that I've had in each of those organisations, including Buildcorp, and including some of the um, boards. On one. one of the one of the organisations, I was a director of years ago. The trust company; it was a publicly listed company. There saw and learned how. Um, different trusts and foundations were structured and some that did things really well. We have an amazing sector in property that I know are very generous and want to give and don't quite know how and we made a decision to set up the BuildCorp Foundation to sort of harness all of that um, energy within in our sector and try and make a difference in our case for things that matter to people at BuildCorp. So we asked our staff what what if we were to get behind a, a cause what do you think you would like it to be if it were build corp? And mental health has, you know, continually been the one till eventually we just went, it's just going to stay mental health. Mm-hmm. And over the last um Six or seven years, there have been, you know, site barbecues where the teams raise, you know, ten, twenty, thirty thousand um, dollars, and we talk about mental health and, and teams being safe. We have a very big event at our home, Tony and I, that raises, you know, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars um, profit in a night. The foundation has no operating costs, but we've learned how to bring the community together. So Lifeline have received um, about a million dollars from the foundation in the last few years. But the partnership piece has been an important one for us, which was how can we partner with government to ensure that we have better mental health outcomes for Australians? And so I approached the Department of Education a few years ago and said, if we came to you with a million dollars, how would you use it to achieve that for children? So we began on a journey of partnering with government to help them achieve their social and economic outcomes. And we ran this project as a pilot. I wanted to understand along the lines of if you partner with us and you match us um, in our $1 million, we'll we'll increase our contribution to $1.2 million. They said, fine, they came along the journey, $2.4 million, and I'm very grateful to the then Minister for Education, Rob Stokes, who was totally supportive of that. And the pilot is finished. Uh, The idea was to get to 100,000 primary school children, and we got to, I think, 150,000. They got to, and over 10,000 primary school teachers. And... And the results of the impact of those where we benchmarked the schools before we arrived and the school communities and then what happened after has shown that this is a really important and powerful tool where we equip young people with tools to move forward into the world and manage anxiety and, you know, keep them psychologically safe in a world that feels a bit unstable and sometimes Mm. unsafe. To me, I've learned how to Bring communities together. Be it government, um, the corporate community for our particular event at our home, the big fundraiser that we have. It's fully underwritten by sponsors. Their sponsors are subcontractors, but they're also clients. They're also just friends. You know, people who we build for, consultants who we work for, um, to subcontractors who say, you know, we always have wanted to give, but we just don't know how you do the heavy thinking for us. But what we try and do is ensure we achieve reach, sort of scale and impact that project is now wrapped up. One quarter of New South Wales primary schools are now trained in the Smiling Mind program. And and that's big for me because the New South Wales Department of Education is the second largest department of education in the world, second only to New York City yeah it's just the way we're structured here so to me I know that when we say a quarter of one state that's a quarter of a big state Mm -hmm. that's a lot of Australian kids so our goal is to now wrap up the other 75% if we can and (laughs) walk hand in hand with government so I've had a lovely conversation with the Department of Education and, and we're ready to go again.
0: Fantastic. Some really great um, insights there around partnering, partnerships, bringing communities together, thinking about reach and impact. You've been driving, I mean, that's an example. You've got many examples of driving impactful and meaningful change. Are there any other kind of key levers or insights that you've kind of picked up along your journey here that you would share around what it takes to drive change? Mm. Tony and I have tried to
1: do this a little bit with rugby union. So when when I met Tony, he mm-hmm. was playing rugby union, and um, he's very passionate about the game. And we were about fifteen years into the match when we um, understood the landscape for women who were playing rugby. I didn't even know there were women that played rugby, but we've mm-hmm. been sponsoring Sydney University rugby club for years. And um, when we saw a the lack of opportunities for women compared to men, and even though we were a small sponsor, um, when you look next to other, you know, national, multinational corporate sponsors in rugby union, we realised that we were able to, with a very small amount um, of support, begin to start to make a small and increasingly material change to the landscape for women in a sport, mm-hmm. and in this case, it was rugby union, and. I think my lessons were um, probably applied there, which was how to uh, be brave in asking for change in a sport and a sector that has been traditionally very male-dominated on its boards and and more broadly. And what Tony and I had done within a club system of uh, rugby Um, we were able to amplify into um, the national rugby team where we're the major sponsors of the the Wallaroos, women's 15 SI side team. There's a competition now for women, uh, the BuildCorp Super W, uh, which sits alongside Super Rugby, so it's the women's equivalent of Super Rugby. But not sort of sitting back and going, this amount of money won't make a difference. I would like to encourage everybody to know if you have the genuine will and the right intention and your why is sound and fair, it, it is fair and it's honest and you can help a governing body enable that to happen because often the reason governing bodies will cite that uh, a lack of pathways for women in a particular sport will be money. So we would sit down and have conversations with rugby and say, what are the issues? how much will this much money solve, you know, and, mm. and begin to try and help them deal with some of their bottlenecks. Because if if you just come in with a stick and go, where are your women? Why aren't you there? You're all a pack of this. You know, that, that is really unhelpful. Is but genuinely sitting yeah. down to help understand, genuinely understand what the issues are so we can genuinely make a difference. And the one thing that I'm really proud of with Tony is we stand shoulder to shoulder and we're a private company, mm. right? And we invest about a million dollars in my being year. And that is our own money, right? Mm. It's not shareholders' money, it's ours. So um, I I hope the community, when we um, advocate, understand that we're not just there on the sideline lobbing grenades. We're in there trying to understand how to change the landscape and bring our advocacy, our money and, uh, you know, our
0: our time and, you know, volunteering time to impact and grow wherever we are. You've... Talked in the past about being a strong advocate for the role that sport can play in building an organisation's success. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? In what ways do you see that?
1: If you're an organisation that's um, people working in teams, and I'd say that's most organisations, there are transferable skills that you learn. Tony has been a huge advocate for this over the years, and I've literally seen it with him in the way he applies himself and approaches a team within BuildCorp he brings everything he learned on the rugby field At rugby union like to say we're a game for all because we need every shape and size we need the little halfback that can't be bigger than this we need the really tall second rowers so they can jump high in line outs we need the big strong you know squat front rowers so um, rugby sees itself as everyone having a role that's different to everybody else's role and but collectively as a team so everybody's very clear on their role and, and respectful of the fact that everybody has a different role to play but they're all equally important but also So um, if you lead a high-performing sports team, you are leading a group of very sort of diverse personalities uh, within the team and also external to that, the coach, sponsors, if you're a larger club um, president. But the goal is... Almost the same. In a high-performing team, their goal is to win the grand final in a way that people will respect the way they've done it. They were honest, they didn't cheat. Um, Sponsors will want to come back again and Mm. and align themselves with it. And in a construction company, if you're the leader of it, Team on a construction site, again, you have a group of very diverse stakeholders on your teams and how what behavioural competencies do you have, what emotional, what, what EQ do you bring to be able to convince all of those people that this is where we're heading, this is the direction we're going in, we need to deliver this project on on budget safely to a high level of quality on time in a way that a client will give us a project again. So if you see there's sort of the same type of skills just apply to different areas. Absolutely.
0: Now, very excitingly for our country, I believe, you've taken the seat at the head of the table as chairperson for the Australian Sports Commission, notably the first female in the role in its 37-year history. Josephine, I cannot imagine that you had a huge amount of spare time on your hands. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is probably not a job for the faint-hearted given how highly politicised sports funding in particular is. What attracted you to this role? Why did you say yes? Tell me about that. I was approached
1: for the role. I had been chairing for the Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, um, the Sports Diplomacy Advisory Council within DFAT. And I was really enjoying that. And when I was first approached, I said, no, thank you. I'm happy doing this. (laughs) But they came back again for another conversation and said, we'd really like you to Uh, consider this role and like any decision Tony and I have made we sat down together and had a conversation about it and Tony actually said to me you know we've never been that couple on the sideline telling people the things that are wrong but we have been frustrated and expressed our frustration and I certainly did to uh, Minister for Sport Richard Colbeck at the time I said, I don't understand why you use our taxpayer money to enable sports that are poorly governed, that are poorly run, that are not uh, aligning with community expectations around participation of women. I don't understand why sports are allowed to develop pathways for just one gender, whereas if you and I did that in corporate Australia, we'd be in front of Fair Work Australia. So I don't know. I don't understand why there aren't consequences for that. And I had been asking these questions more broadly and Tony said to me, here's your chance to actually try and make a difference. Now, mm. if I look at our performance from 2000, our Olympic tally, has, um, medal tally has gone down. I felt the sector was a bit fractured, but I didn't really know that. That was my observation. And, and I suppose Olympic medals are a bit of a, an outcome of, you know well let's put it in reverse 2000 went really well for <laughs> Sydney the 2000 Olympic Games it was an outcome of having an AIS in place which was established in 1981 and and a, a genuine focus and an all coming together to deliver that I feel like we we have slipped a little bit and I look at each of the individual sports and everyone is working so hard but we've forgotten to work how to, how to work hard together there's a little bit of friction and tension between there I historically like to work to bring people together and facilitate that and how do we do this together because frankly the enemy's on the outside you know it's across the ditch it's up it you know it's in the northern hemisphere right. it's everyone else yeah. in Australia so we've got to figure out how we can bring ourselves together and what structures are the best structures to do that within because we do have this likely uh fingers crossed Olympic Games in Southeast Queensland in 2032, and here is our opportunity for us to focus on the participation of 10 and 11 year olds who, by 2032, will be well and truly um, old enough to be able to think about participation if that's their desire or their ability in an Olympic Games. But more broadly, how do we re-prosecute the case for federal for federal funding and investment, and in the value that sport has not just in the Australian psyche, but it, it, in its post-COVID recovery, mm-hmm. it's health benefits, it's its mental health benefits, what are the halo effects that uh, sport brings so we know that we're a country where sport is such a huge part of our psyche and mm. I genuinely believe that sport, it can be part of the solution, so with that um, backdrop then, yes, I busy. We made a few changes at Buildcorp and our son who's been in the business for 7 years stepped up into some of my operational roles. I'm still there but less. I've pulled back from a couple of boards and um, making time for this because there are a lot of people who have been working really hard within sport who deserve to be working within structures that work for them. The government have been really committed to work with me on this and and I believe that. I I believe the federal government on this and and with that if we're all want to, you know, look towards 2032 and point ourselves in the right direction. I thought this is an exciting time to be on the on the bus. So, I jumped on the bus.
0: <laughs> I'm very glad you have uh, jumped on that bus. Now, it's an exciting time. It could also, I mean, it would be also an overwhelming time. We've got the backdrop of COVID-19, which has thrown the funding and operations of Australia's sporting federations into, you know, disarray. Um, we've, You've got the delayed Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games. You've got a bid for the 2032 Brisbane Olympic Games. Lots and lots of things to focus on. How and where do you start?
1: Oh, with the leaders. So I've I've made it my business to invest the first three months of my time in the role uh, within the organisation, within the Australian Sports Commission, and with the presidents of the 100 national sporting organisations. To first of all hear from them as the leaders of their sector as how do you Um, what's your perspective what do you feel Um, engaging with the Commonwealth Games Association the Australian Olympic Committee so there's lots of stakeholders within the landscape and it's understanding for me where are we working well together where are we getting in each other's way and and where is a duplication and more importantly where are the gaps Mm. and
0: what should we be looking to do to fill those? And so, as you said, Josephine, you know, sports is such a fundamental part of the Australian psyche in Australian life. Um, The suspension of sports during COVID was one of the more visible and some would say more difficult limitations that Aussies have had to deal with and continue to deal with, not just for the entertainment side, but the health and social benefits. How do you see this um, playing out, pardon the pun, particularly amongst youth? And is there stuff that we really need to be uber conscious of given the times that we are sort of navigating at the moment?
1: What I understand from sports is that we had pre-COVID 3.1 million volunteers participating in Australian sport. They're coming back a bit slower. Our participation rates are coming back a bit slower. You know, mum and dad who were um, got their Saturday mornings back when they were in lockdown for COVID, some of them are going, you know, actually it's, been really nice having Saturday mornings back so uh you know we need to re-prosecute the case for what are the other things your child might benefit from if they were to continue to participate in sport we also need to prosecute case for people who don't think sport is well for whom it's not important you know i am on the board of opera australia and and there are people who who think that there has been insufficient investment in the arts and we're too top heavy in sport but i think we need to do our job well enough within sport that anybody regardless of whether they're sports people or not look to an application of federal funding to a sport or sports more broadly and go okay i get it i understand why that's important so i think for for us within sport we've got to really redefine and reimagine for those australians who aren't necessarily on the journey with us what the benefits are
0: josephine you have such a big platform for driving change in all the various spheres that you operate in um We have an opportunity now to define a new Australia as we come out of COVID. How do you see Australia looking and how would you want us to be reimagining the future?
1: Well, I think if we start to look at the immediate impact we saw around not being able to access PPE, for example, Mm -hmm. and having a mirror held up to, wow, we can't manufacture things here very much anymore. And we extend that back to um, interrogate that a bit further and go, well, manufacturing requires blue-collar work, requires a participation in TAFE, requires schools to think about directing students into technical and TAFE-type courses. How have we elevated those courses to attract blue-collar workers into the sector? So when I look to what happened with the border shut, of course we have a labour shortage in construction, of course we do. Because we're, number one, not only are we not training enough people in that there is a lack of appetite for parents and schools to students finish school in year 10 and go straight to TAFE the way I did. Now, I I went to Guamia High School. At Guamia High School in year 10, there were 200 of us. In year 11, there were 70 of us. So that's 130 people entered the workforce or went to, uh, you know, began to be upskilled in TAFE. Today, I reckon those 200 in year 10 probably all continue on to year 12. And when I think about what we learned then – We learned to read Chaucer. We learned (laughs) (laughs) um, skills that that I I, I struggle to see how that would help somebody who really wanted to be an auto electrician or a hairdresser. Now, we we all understand the value of education, but these days, and I think it was one of the Atlassian guys came out and said, "Yeah, what's the point of universities these days? Pretty much everything you need to learn, you could learn on YouTube. You might have a point. So I think somewhere within our public discussions within Australia, a repositioning and revaluing of technical skills, which you are not going to learn off YouTube, which you do need to be at TAFE. How do we re-elevate that? We've got so many people with degrees who are not using them and rethink about how we talk about education in this country and not allow parents or students to use language like I only went on to year 10. Um that was never how we spoke about this when I was at school. That was I can remember looking at my girlfriends on the station as I was heading off in my you know jeans to uni and they looked glamorous and gorgeous heading off to their jobs in the city as, you know, um EAs, receptionists, whatever they were doing, HR and I, and we were all equally valued. Something has happened in our public discussion that has has landed us where we are. So a manufacturing nation or a country that can do more than dig stuff out of the ground and, you know, it's all that, is going to need to reimagine how it can add value to that stuff we dig out of the ground ourselves here and what are the technical skills we need there. So, to me, a reimagining um, looks at looks at that in the future. I do know, I was speaking to a dairy farmer um few months ago, who told me that he can't get people to milk his cows, um, so he has to bring them in. And apparently the best people to help him milk cows are German backpackers because they they arrive on time, they're really clean, and they're efficient and effective. <laughs> and I guess none of us would be surprised at that, but you know, do, do we totally want to lose our food bowl? Do we totally want to? Lo- so if we then can't um, grow and produce our own food, our own milk, well then what? Mm. And then, if borders close what and and what if the geopolitical nature of the world means that all of a sudden we can't feed our population, then what so? I think all Australians need to lean into this a bit and think, well what do we want to look like? What are the risks that now face that we've seen genuine risks that, that um have and could amplify and face a country like ours, and how can we look after ourselves?
0: Mm, such an important discourse to be uh, engaging in. The last three, three fast questions on change to finish the podcast. I'm now going to finish up Josephine uh, on a really fast, lighthearted three questions. So what are you reading, watching or listening to right now?
1: (laughs) I've actually just reread a book that I give to everybody um, who I see who is not entirely sure how to move to the next level of their career, and it's by Viktor Frankl, and it's Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. And that is around controlling our own responses to things, whatever is happening in the world around us that we can't control, and being in control, when you're like me, you're a type, you want to be in control, Mm -hmm. you can control the way you respond to things. And Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psycho. Um, analyst who ended up in Auschwitz and lost his whole family, but said, you know, well, I can't control what's happening around me. I can control the way I choose to respond. So um, that's one I'm back into and I'm enjoying.
0: Wonderful. What is your superpower? It can be something that's highly additive to the world or a useless party trick. I value both of those.
1: Oh, sometimes I think it's possibly that I have no boundaries. So I do pick up the phone to people I have no business picking up the phone to, like a minister or to say, oh, this is really great idea. What do you reckon? Come on a journey with me. Love it. Um,
0: If you were going to put up a a quote on a billboard, what would it say? It would be my late father's advice to
1: uh, people who took on a lot, one day at a time.
0: So good. Such good advice. Josephine, thank you very much for your time today. I've really enjoyed um, the discussion so much that I've taken away from the conversation. It is your hard work ethic, your um, clear life of gratitude for what you've had and your desire to continually give back and share the opportunities with others is really evident. I can't help but be struck the number of times that you've talked about Tony in this conversation with such pride, um, you've woven him into every one of your life stories and that journey together is so clear and natural, that partnership and teaming. Um, you know, you said the words, the quote, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I think, you know, I joked about the hashtag couple goals with you two, but that that sense of teaming whether it's with tony whether it's with your own organization whether it's with government whether with communities and sports is so clear. And that is why you go so far because you go together. Um, your, the clarity on what you stand for, what your business stands for, and the, the clarity of goals guiding your decision making is really clear. And, you know, for someone who's asking us all to be brave in asking for change, I have to say that it's clear that you've never been on the sidelines, that you've always put yourself on the field and you are brave in asking for change. So thank you for being that role model and long may we learn from you.
1: That's very kind of you, Janelle. Thank you very much. I really enjoy the conversation. Me too. Thanks, Josephine.
0: The Change Happens Podcast from EY, a conversation on leading through change. Discover more where you get your podcasts.